0: This is The God Show, a conversation about the human spirit, with your host, Pat McMahon. And that's me, and we're here for another week. I was just telling our guests that we've been doing this show for about 24 years now, and and you haven't asked us to leave. In fact, we've now expanded the audience to the entire planet. And I know that you're going to really relate to the subject, even though it's kind of focused on some of the things going on in the United States right now. I know it's applicable also to most of Europe, some Asia, and in different parts of the world. I'm talking about a book that's titled The Church's Mission in a Polarized World. And Father Aaron Westman, I will tell you right now, I was on the debate team in school. And the debate team, as you know, academically, meant that civilized folks can create conversation on different sides of an issue. And the most important thing is is that you follow the rules and you remain civilized. Father Aaron Westman, whatever happened to those days?
1: Yeah, it's great to be on the show with you, Pat, and it's really wonderful to um, be able to talk about a subject that's really close to my heart, and, and that is the, the challenge of, of polarization. And I think you know we've come to a particular place in the United States today where it's very difficult uh, for us to have meaningful conversations with people who perhaps see the world uh, differently than us. Uh, Maybe they come from a a different political party. Maybe they hail from a different part of the United States. Um, You know, maybe they belong to a different religion. And for various reasons, um, I think we're finding it very difficult to relate to each other, uh, to have conversations, and to um, really pursue the good and what is true together. And it's challenging right now in the US. And as you mentioned, I think there are other contexts throughout the world that are experiencing this as well.
0: Yes, and and uh, when you hail from a different part of the country and you also support a different football team, we've got the Super Bowl coming up. In fact, when this is on the air, when this is on the air for the first time, the Super Bowl will just about be starting. And I will not consider it a mortal sin if folks... Listen to the Super Bowl first and tune us in later on uh, because (laughs) we'll be on forever. But the Eagles versus Kansas City, there's a competition that goes on uh, on the football field here in Phoenix, Arizona, and it'll decide the championship. And yet I just read about a woman with Kansas City uh, garb on. Mm -hmm. being confronted by Eagles fans in an elevator somewhere, wasn't here, but being confronted and insulted because she was wearing the colors of the other team in a sporting contest. Now, I know that there's always been competition, but even that's gotten to be less civilized, don't you think?
1: Yeah, I think so. And um, I have to uh, show my true colors here being a Minnesota Vikings fan. We've never, well, let's just say we've never appreciated fully uh, those uh, folks from from Philadelphia, but uh, you're right. And that's that's just the game, right? And uh, there's something going on there when that that game is taken so seriously that, you know, you would assault another person uh, or, you know, pick on another person
0: because they're wearing a particular garb from that team. But the title of your book, The Church's Mission in a Polarized World, as I was reading it, Father, I remembered clearly a time when a Catholic president wouldn't have been considered possible. A couple of them ran, they were defeated sorely, and then Jack Kennedy came along. But even then, there were those who in large numbers said, sure, you can vote for this JFK guy, this Roman Catholic candidate, but you know after that that American policy will be decided by the Vatican. Remember that? That's right.
1: Well, I certainly know of it historically, yeah. And I know that the church, uh, kind of pre-JFK, was... um, trying to kind of make it on the main scene of the political world. And it was a struggle. So um, historically, the U.S. has been uh, very much a... a but in your book, country. you talk
0: about a polarized world today. Don't you think that we've come a long way when it comes to religion and politics? We have a president now that's a Catholic.
1: A- absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think you see with uh, Catholics and Catholicism that there is... a. Uh, much more of an infusion uh, and much more of a mix with Catholics being involved in the political world. And I think um, one of the challenges today is really uh, for Christians and for and for other people, for Catholics, for people of goodwill, it's really to say, is the negativity of the political scene affecting us as Christians and as Catholics? And in the sense, um, is it making us be something that perhaps we shouldn't be? So there's always kind of that influence, if you will, back and forth between you know, the church in the political realm uh, and and politics in the
0: church. And it's hard to find that particular balance. But in the book, in the book, The Church's Mission in a Polarized World, you pose the challenge to your church and mine uh, that there is a responsibility there. Is the Catholic Church willing to accept the mission?
1: Well, that's a great question. And one of the things I talk about in the book is that um, there has been increasingly, um, I think, the utilization of um, the war metaphor and and war language um, in the life of uh, folks on on both sides of the political spectrum, but I think in quite a significant way historically within the conservative Republican Party and uh, statistically most Christians uh, line up. Uh, with the conservative Republican Party. And when that war language is utilized and it's kind of everywhere, it can really affect the way Christians understand themselves. And I think the challenge is really for us to be sort of fully uh, formed by the message of the gospel and the example given to us by Jesus and not to be uh, really you know, formed or overtaken or intoxicated by some of the negativity that's taking place and the hatred and the vitriol and the disdain that we're seeing today. And that that really is the challenge. And that's where my heart is, especially in in writing this book, because, you know, personally, I see it myself in some ways, right? I I see sometimes that anger, that hatred, and it it wells up. And I wonder, where is this coming from? And um, that's not who I want to be. And I know it's oftentimes not many people want to be, but we can be subsumed into the, the logic or the storm of polarization, as I call it. And especially for Christians, I think that's a problem when we're trying our best to be formed by the the gospel, uh, which is one of really, what I say, crossing over and and engaging the other, um, uh, talking to the other, listening to the other, dialoguing with the other, and we can speak from our perspective and share our story, uh, but we must first encounter really and embrace the other because that's the example that Jesus gave to us in his own uh, life and ministry.
0: Well, recently I've been waiting for that kind of brotherhood to take place and that kind of openness. Uh, In fact, and please, if you will, I'm not talking about you, my guest, Father Aaron Westman, but our guests here in the United States right now who are listening, please, if you will, listen to the entire phrase before you start leaping on the assumption that I'm saying something that is anti-Trump. It just so happens that when we're talking about polarization, a recent example of that came from Mr. Trump. And since my guest was just discussing war, peace and polarization, it falls into a quote from Vanity Fair just this past month. Donald Trump said that he knows how to stop the war in Ukraine but he won't tell anyone. Hmm. And I had to read it several times over because I thought that's not really the best attitude in the world for a peacemaker, is it, Father?
1: Yeah, I, I don't think so. I mean, I certainly know some, you know, very wonderful and special people from Ukraine, and my heart goes out to them. And I think, um, you know, we all desire peace to be taking
0: place in that region for sure. But if you know how to stop the war, whether you're in office or not, it probably makes you far more uh, a peacemaker in your own right right, uh, to say, look, I'm not in any position right now uh, that has inherent political power, but here's what I would do. I mean, that just seems logical, and it also seems like... uh, a a very uh, leadership like position to take.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's so important that all of us, uh, if we find ourselves in a, in a position or we feel we have insight into a situation where there's so much conflict taking place and, and really sadness, destruction, uh, death, um, we would want to do everything we can to just try to support peace
0: and, and promote it any way we can. Yeah, whether it's Trump or whether it's Biden or whether it's Putin or whether it's uh, the, the leadership of any country, uh, it would be nice to know that there was a possibility of ending that that horrible conflict over there. Here, American politics and religion are both guilty of polarization, would you not say?
1: Yeah, I think so. And, um, you know, I tried to show that in the book by really beginning the first couple chapters looking at political science and and sociology and talking about the ways in which our kind of political setup and some of the trends politically in the United States have produced polarization, but I also take a couple of chapters and do something which is sometimes not very easy to do, and that's to be, you know, self-critical, also to be critical about Christians and, and the church, and really invite us all to ask the question, how also is the church perhaps Producing a polarized situation uh, in the United States uh, within the church itself, um, so I think it's we we have to really ask the question in in all of the realms of of the world and society in which we live.
0: Pursue that further, if you will, the church in the United States and its own problems with polarization.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and um, one of the things I think uh, that's important to recognize there is that um the church is always trying to kind of live up to who she is you know i talk in the book about being one holy catholic and apostolic and those kind of phrases if you will are in a sense a gift that's been given uh, to christians but our challenge is to cultivate uh those gifts in our own lives and and in our world and just take kind of for instance the idea of, of catholicity not necessarily referring to capital c catholic but Rather, in a sense, uh, my openness to kind of the whole of reality. And so what that means is wherever I find something that's good and and truthful and beautiful, whether that's in a person who's in the church itself, that might be a person in another religion, and that be a person from another political party, uh, my call is to kind of go out and to uh, find where that goodness is and that truth is and affirm it and, and listen to it. And allow myself to grow uh, by what i've encountered and and what i've learned and one of the things which polarized culture does is it kind of um works against that mentality and it can impede the church from really living up to uh that is the catholic spirit which is given to her and that's that's really unfortunate uh, because we've had saints in the past that have been so good at this and that is Uh, They've been able to kind of look at the world around them and and identify where all of these values are uh, and, in a sense, embrace them and sometimes, you know, challenge them or make them better, which is always an important part of it. But the polarized world in which we live, I think, kind of forces us into our silos or into our tribes uh, and keeps us from living that that very Catholic spirit. Another thing I would suggest is that the church is really called to, um, you know, to be holy, and I talk about in the book how that's, in a sense, can be defined as as my willingness to kind of step across and, and stand in solidarity with uh, perhaps even my enemies, right? Those who I don't see eye to eye with. And I use this kind of, what I think is a beautiful example of Saint Damien of Molokai. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, you know, this is a, a saint, of course, who grew up in Belgium, so there's some connection there with me, because I studied in Belgium for four years and actually prayed at his his tomb a number of times. Um, but but Damien uh, uh, felt called to go and minister to uh, a leper colony uh, on present day Hawaii. Um, and his ability to kind of view what the world might see as repugnant or you know difficult to be around, to see that and then to cross over, to be with those people, to love them, to stand in solidarity with them. He's a great example to us of what it means for us to be holy. Well, today, in some cases, right, and I think we each have to ask ourselves how this is affecting us, whether we're Christian or not. But today, we see what might appear to be repugnant, and uh, we, we blame it. We, 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 we cast dispersions on it. We try to distance ourselves from it. Um, rather than kind of crossing over, standing in solidarity, trying to love, that which is different um, than, than I am, um, and, and really live, I think, what Jesus is challenging us to live. So very much so in the various you know, modes of the church that we're supposed to live, we're struggling today to do that. If I might say, this is also existing within the church itself. Um, and um, we see this, I think, in many ways coming out of, of the Second Vatican Council, which happened in the 1960s. Um, for, for better or for worse, there were, there were kind of two uh, general, I would say, camps or groups or theological opinions that emerged uh, from, the, from the council. And uh, there is a, a way in which I think we've struggled uh, within those different camps for people to listen to each other, uh, to try to dialogue with each other, and to really, I think, note where there is value in what the other person has to say, and where it's a very legitimate way of living the Catholic life. But what is happening, and I use this image in the book, in the sense there are even hurricanes sort of forming within the church, um, and we have to do our best to try to, I think, overcome that uh, in order to be united as, I think, Jesus desires for the
0: church. When you say we do our best, we do our best as parishioners, and we do our best as as parish priests, but... You mentioned uh, that period of time in the 60s that was filled not only with change but also tumult uh, because I don't think anyone can deny the fact that the College of Cardinals, uh, at least those that were influential enough to elect Pope John XXIII did so because he was an old guy who wasn't gonna cause any trouble. And then this old guy did turn the church upside down mm-hmm. with major changes and, uh, and, of course, was met with disapproval and with, uh, uh, with a great deal of, uh, of debate. But he won, and it seems as if those days are from another century now, is polarization more dangerous now, though, in the church and in politics and in Thanksgiving dinner?
1: <laughs> those, are, those are great questions.
0: Um,
1: at least what I try to show uh, in the book is that we are at um, somewhat of an unprecedented time. And part of what's causing, I think, some of the deeper polarization today is, is first of all, that geographically, folks who are in one group or the other just aren't necessarily associating with each other. We do talk in the United States of uh, maybe a coastal and a heartland divide or a a rural and an urban divide, and that really matters. That's something that has come uh, to be the case in recent history, and there's a great book called The Big Sort by Bill Bishop, and and he shows how uh, sorting has happened geographically. And what that means is We might be part of a different party or a different group. When we don't interact with each other, when we don't associate with each other, when we're not around each other, um, it's very easy for us uh, as being members of one group or another to see the other group as with suspicion, let's say, or even worse, as the enemy. So that's certainly one thing that's happening today, which is quite unprecedented, I think, in the history of the United States. Another thing which makes it, I think, very challenging today is that more and more within the very groups that we've created, there's less and less diversity. Uh, And so there's, uh, in a sense, um, less diversity of thought, uh, less diversity of kind of religious expression, uh, less diversity of what we entertain ourselves with culturally. And so again, what you have is a situation where people have less and less in common. The thing which becomes very problematic is that today there is an intensified negativity, and that comes in various ways. Uh, Some of that is influenced by the political world in which we live. It's very easy to get people excited, uh, to get people energized, to get people to get out and vote when you push negativity. And that was something that we find happening more and more today it's also very easy to get people to watch your program or to share your story on social media or to click like on social media if you are kind of, if you will, stimulating negativity. It's, we're in somehow, in some ways addicted to it. So that negativity just keeps boiling and boiling and it's affecting us in many ways. And so I would say, particularly because of social media, particularly because of the rise of negativity that we find in the political world, that absolutely we're at a different place today. And it's kind of trickling all the way through the various areas of society, whether that's amongst Christians within the church or whether that's in the political realm itself, whether that's, like you said, around the, around the table.
0: Those words come from our guest on the God show, Robert Aaron Westman, father Westman, a priest, Roman Catholic priest, and first vice president, vicar general and director of, formation for the Glenmary Home Missionaries. If you're not familiar with that, uh, Glenmary is a missionary society of apostolic life in the Catholic Church, conducting missions in rural, poor, and non-Catholic areas of the United States, primarily in the Southeast and Appalachia. Uh, Very, very interesting part of geography that you've chosen. You spend that much time in Appalachia and its regions. And I wonder uh, if polarization is more or less prominent there than in urban United States. That's a great question. And, you know,
1: I don't know how to answer that statistically and based on research, but I do know um, that my heart has come to love uh, and to really appreciate the people of rural America, uh, of Appalachia. I think Glenmary is in such a privileged place uh, to be able to serve the people in these regions. Uh, with that, I do believe uh, that a certain um, type of polarization exists in uh, r- rural America, and I do think that there is kind of a, a both and here. I think that folks in rural America, and again, it's always dangerous to do generalizations, but just kind of generally speaking, I think there are ways in which folks in rural America are suspicious uh, of people from uh, cities, Mm -hmm. uh, from the coast. And I also know that that the same case uh, is vice versa. So I think that there are people from cities and from uh, from the coast who are suspicious of of folks of rural America. And that kind of breaks my heart because I find myself uh, with one foot in both worlds. Um, I know there are good people in, in both places. Um, I know there are great things that are of value in both places. And I think one of the tasks of undoing some of the polarization that exists within the American context is finding ways for folks who are from those two demographics uh, to interact, to talk with each other, to share with each other, to visit each other, and there are actually very um, very dedicated and, and intentional programs out there that are trying to do that today. So in part of the book, I, in the final chapter, I talk about all these organizations and, and people who are trying to sort of overcome some of the negative tendencies of polarization. And there's a group, for instance, called ETGAR 36. And their whole mission is to take people from cities and bring them to rural America and to take people from rural America and bring them to the cities. And they do this together. Right. So they're on a bus together, they fly together so that they can enjoy the various gifts that are existing in these this great diversity of places within the United States. And that's just kind of one example. In Glenmary, you know, we've been doing that in our own small way. We have a volunteer program called Tapa Jaffa, So it's on top of Jaffa Mountain in eastern Tennessee. And we've been bringing people in from universities and from uh, urban areas into these very rural places for many, many, many years. And we do that so that the people can understand and learn from the folks of rural America, but there's also a great service element there. you know. So you really stand in solidarity with another person when you enter into that relationship uh, of service.
0: But aren't the biases and the fundamental areas of polarization in your terms, uh, based now as they always have been between rural and urban on prosperity or the assumption of prosperity, or the lack of it, and education, or the lack of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. One of the things um, that Ezra Klein does in his book, uh, Why We're Polarized, is he uses um, statistical data and, and the research of, of political scientists to show that the parties used to be uh, much more mixed and have much more diversity within them. Um, so, you know, within Republican Party, you would, you would have had you know, both liberal and conservative people. You would have had people from uh, urban areas and rural areas. Uh, and the same would have been the case in progressive parties. So the point would be that there was a lot more diversity within the parties themselves. What's happened now, though, is we've basically split you know, very clearly that the majority of folks from rural America are voting Republican. And the opposite is the case for those who are Democrat or progressive, the majority coming from suburbs or urban areas. Um, So that right there is already going to form the parties in a particular way um it is true that you know you have to look at statistics regarding you know education um but as a number of people show like adam grant for instance in his work think again i mean as, as our client gets into it isn't always necessarily the case that we will be less polarized or we'll be more you know informed or open to listen to the other if we have more education obviously i'm a big fan of education i think it's very important But sometimes polarization has to do with how we feel and not necessarily what we know. And so it's really important to kind of take a look at the feelings that we have deep inside. And that's related to our identities. And that has to do about where we come from, uh, what's our religious background, how do we identify ourselves racially,
0: um, and the values that are important to us in our life. And sometimes those feelings create a dangerous boiling over in society the church's mission in a polarized world is the book we're talking about with father aaron westman but i get the impression that you feel uh if this is not the church's attitude then it's aaron westman's attitude the polarization is more dangerous now than at any other time in history and yet just looking at the life of Jesus and the conflict that he had every day of his life with all of his opponents would suggest it's always been, but it hasn't really been publicized because of media.
1: Yeah, certainly uh, in the book, I I do talk about the polarization that that Jesus encountered. I also look at uh, the early... Christian communities, particularly those formed by St. Paul, um, and the, the, the division uh, that was existing within those communities. I look at Philippi as kind of a perfect example, and I, I talk about what it was that Paul tried to do, and constantly St. Paul is calling his communities uh, to deeper unity. Um, you know, so it, it's always hard to compare one context to another, one historical moment to another. Um, you know, following some of the people doing research, I do think there is a way in which today, at least for the American context, uh, we are seeing deepening polarization. Just to give you an instance, they say today that we're experiencing the rise of negative polarization. What that means is people aren't even that excited about their own party, uh, but much more is the case that they actually hate their opponents and think they have subhuman qualities. And You can track those statistics, and and that's definitely on the rise. Other markers that uh, researchers talk about. So it used to be the case that, yeah, I mean, uh, a a few percentages of people were, you know, maybe a little bit perturbed if their son or daughter dated or married somebody from another party. And those numbers today are rising significantly, right? So um, we see that there's something associated with our, our kind of hatred for the other, Uh, particularly those from the other party, is is on the rise today uh, in ways that um, I'm not sure uh, it was always the case, certainly uh, over the last maybe four or five decades.
0: No, just simply the television advertising during an election, during a campaign, is uh, seemingly rising to yet another level, an unexpected level, of negativity. Uh, In fact, you use a phrase in the book regularly that seems to come right out of a number of those campaigns. You're not just running against an opponent. You're running against the repugnant cultural other.
1: Yeah. What a sad, I think, state of affairs um, that we live in where I see another human being and because uh, they're from a particular party, maybe a different religion, maybe a different race, uh, maybe they have a different understanding of sexuality, uh, that I write them off completely and see them as repugnant. Um, and I, I talk about this in the book that, you know, I don't want to dramatize it, but we know historically that when we've seen different groups of people as repugnant, as less than human, the results have been catastrophic and sad and terrible um and we just have to be careful with that right because it's part of who we are as human beings right there's something in us that when you start to um get within a group and that group identifies of them and that group does that that them is a problem and that them doesn't necessarily have dignity we can do um uh, wildly terrible things as human beings so I think that it's you know that's why I, I wrote the book in part the, just trying to to raise the importance of the of the time that we're in you know and again I go back to myself and, and really ask the question what's going on inside of me where am I being subsumed into the polarized culture today how am I contributing to it and why can't I listen uh, why can't I see uh, the other as having
0: dignity and um I think it's a pressing question for us. Well, I'll tell you what, because of the fact that I am the humble host of a radio program called The God Show, and I depend on people like you, Aaron Westman, author of The Church's Mission in a Polarized World, why don't we decide what it is you, I, we, the planet can do about it today to change things so that we don't have the national socialist organization telling us that it's all the Jews fault. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there are a number of things
1: um, that we can do very practically. Um, you know, I would invite people if they're interested to, to take a look at my book. I try to offer some very practical helps for us today i think i say it in the book you know i might provide a critique of various groups of various responses in the book but the lasting effect of effect of the book will be if people look at their own heart look at their own lives so i think that kind of taking thought first about what's going on inside of me do i have a group that i've labeled as uh, repugnant um, if i do can I talk to somebody about that? Can I recognize that? Um, so I think that's very, that's a very important first step. Now, not everybody's going to be able to do that. I understand that's very difficult. Um, there are sources in our life that I think that feed that negativity. I'm, I'm very cautious uh, in the amount of um, network uh, media that I watch. Um, I think that part of their uh, financial plan is to... Uh, uh the marketing plan is to, to make people angry and upset mm-hmm. uh, so i think we should really limit ourselves uh, by what we watch i think we need to also do that on social media there's a lot of good stuff being written today about some of the, the polarizing effects of social media of the various forms so i i don't write it off completely but i i do my personally personally it's myself i do try to limit my time on social media i think it can serve a purpose But there are ways that social media can deepen negativity in our lives, so identifying that. Um, So kind of, in a sense, safeguarding ourselves from sources of negativity and sources of bias is one thing. If I identify a group that I feel like I don't understand and that perhaps worse, I see as repugnant, I invite people to find an avenue to be around those people. Sociologists call this and psychologists call this contact theory. And Peter Coleman uh, writes a book called The Way Out, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization. And he goes into the various ways that contact theory, that is being around those who are different than us, perhaps those that we even have negative feelings towards in the right situation and in the right setting. Sometimes it has to be a controlled setting, but being around those people uh, actually can help uh, me overcome some of my biases and negative feelings. In Glenmary, we've done some small things, we call them undoing racism workshops. And essentially what we're doing is we're, we're, we're trying our best to facilitate bringing people together from di- different races and having people share their story. And when we share our stories, it really changes who we are. Uh, we do this also in Glenmary with um, ecumenism. So we bring together Christians from various denominations. Oftentimes there's a lot of animosity sadly between Christians from various denominations, and that's also pointing the you know the, the light at Catholics. We can maybe feel negative towards Baptists, let's say, or or um, you know Pentecostals, for instance, and it could be vice versa. So what we do is we try to bring these these people t- together in a forum uh, where we can share our story about what it means to be a Christian and, and how my life has changed. And it's so amazing the first few hours, the first day. People are very hesitant, and they're, they they fight it, right? They they're <laughs> uncomfortable. And then the second day, there is an absolute transformation that takes place. And I I just get goosebumps thinking about it. it. It actually works. And so, you know, people are out there. They're writing this whole idea of contact theory. I call it crossing over because I try to relate it theologically to the life of Jesus.
0: But this whole idea of crossing over, contact theory, it really works. But why the um, metamorphosis then? Why uh, all of a sudden are Baptists embracing Catholics? Well, uh, because I think deep
1: inside we recognize that we're all human. We recognize that we have far more in common than we thought. And that the differences we have, and I don't think we should ignore the differences. thats It's important to talk about the differences, but they just, they aren't, as important to us when we start to see all of the commonalities that exist. Um, And then when we have that relationship, it's much easier to respectfully engage the differences, uh, to listen to each other, to dialogue. And when I know I can kind of trust you and maybe even I love you, well, then I can be changed by you and changed for the better. And that's that's where the metamorphosis takes place. And I think that's what Jesus was trying to show us. You know, what did Jesus do? So he identifies the outcast, the demoniac, let's say, the so-called sinner, uh, the one who's been cast out. And he showed everybody around him, much to their critique, he crossed over to that person and recognized the humanity of that person and loved that person and therefore saved that person. And because he did that, he offered an example to those Mm. around him. And I, I do think that at a fundamental level, that's what the church is called to do. I think she can do it. I think she has done it. I think we're struggling somewhat today. Um, and that would be my hope that the book would challenge folks. To think about that a little bit. You've done, long a, long.
0: you've done a lot of historical research in the writing of the church's mission in a polarized world. And I wonder if, as you've looked back at different times, different eras, you have found that there has ever been anything similar to the lack of trust in leadership that exists today.
1: Yeah. Um, I don't know if there is um, that same lack of trust in institutions uh, and in leadership that would be comparable to other times. That, certainly, I, I'm i not sure if I can answer that. I do think that today, you know, over and over again, different Few research reports come out, statistical data, and there is a great um, lack of trust uh, in, in leadership in an in institutions. It presents a very difficult challenge for the church. Um, it does as well for our political institutions. And I'm, you know, in in some in many ways, I, I think that uh, we've made mistakes. Uh, let's say within the church, um, uh, people have made poor decisions. People have been hurt. Uh, so um, there's a reason why people uh, are struggling to trust those who are in authority. And, um, you know, that the only thing that we can hope for, I think, in that regard is that uh, we would find avenues uh, for reconciliation, forgiveness. And honestly, we've got to continue to put into place systems of accountability and transparency so that that trust can be rebuilt.
0: But it isn't just here in the United States or even the Western world. That same, that same suspicion about leadership, uh, that lack of respect, seems to exist in so many other parts of the world, in so many different systems, don't you think?
1: Yeah, I do think um, that particularly in um, liberal or democratic societies, lowercase d with that, um, there is a, a certain calling into question of, of the structures which exist politically, and then therefore also calling into question the leaders within those structures. Um, so there is a lack of trust. Uh, there is a suspicion uh, that's there. And um, I think it really needs to be attended to um, in, in various levels, whether that's those who are in the academic world, um, but also for, for those of us that kind of inhabiting those spaces to really ask the question,
0: you know, what can we do for our own civic situation, our own political situation? But isn't there also a healthy element to being suspicious of leadership uh, and not following <laughs> lockstep behind a dictator? Oh, yeah. You know, so um, I've lived in different contexts. And
1: um, that, that good old, I would say, kind of American individualism, suspicion, uh, it's part of who I am, too. I do think there's a value there, right? We, you know, you you really want to, um, you really wanna uh, trust, but verify if you will, right? Um, (laughs) You you wanna have a healthy sense of suspicion. I think that's part of what it means to grow in maturity. Uh, It's part of what it means to, you know, not be taken advantage of. And that's why I I hope, and I'm seeing it, and I think Pope Francis has done a wonderful thing. You know, the the whole idea of, of synodality is a situation where people can come together and ask difficult questions of of leaders and leaders can listen. Uh, We need that kind of healthy dialogue in the church. We need that kind of healthy listening. Um, I wonder if there are ways that that can happen uh, within our political institutions too. We need to be in contact with each other and listening to each other. And when I've been involved in areas of synodality, I have found them to be the most fruitful when you bring people from various walks of life together and you allow people to speak what's on their heart, and and particularly those in leadership, have the courage, and it's difficult, because I'm in a position of leadership, I know it's challenging, but have the courage to to listen, and to listen well um, to what's going on. I think that creates a deeper sense of trust. It also provides that nice check, uh, that suspicion, if you will, where the people who are there can ask the questions that are necessary
0: It also sounds like the philosophy of a true Minnesota Viking. Yeah. (laughs) Well, sometimes I think in Minnesota we're we're just too nice and maybe we need to be a little more suspicious, but I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, listen, there's a word that continues to be used in your book, sorting. Let's talk about that and explain that to our audience. Yeah, sure. So
1: sorting is really just the formation of groups. And um, what's happened in the United States is that uh, going back to the work of uh, folks such as like Bill Bishop in his work called The Big Sort, we've sorted into regions uh, geographically. um, And what happens is uh, there are just values uh, and kind of the activities that people are involved in within those regions, the political perspectives that people have, and then also religious and even racial identities uh, that go along with the sorting which has taken place in the United States. And there kind of truly then becomes a situation where you have, uh, as I mentioned, like kind of that coastal and, and heartland divide or or, or urban and, and rural divide. And that's what's happened. We've, we've sorted into two groups uh, that see the world in, in different ways, that, that have different values, that kind of form our lives in different ways, and that those groups don't interact as much as they should. And then, Like I referred to earlier, if you're not interacting with people who are different than you, that whole idea of contact theory doesn't work, right? So that whole idea that, you know, uh, I might be a red person and you might be a blue person, but I'm around you and I can see that, you know, you're a human being and and we have, you know, like our kids are on the same sports team and we are, you know, we go together at a restaurant and we see each other and maybe we even worship together. Well, I see that you're a human being and we share different values. That doesn't happen uh, when we're not.
0: Uh, living in the same regions within the United States. And that's what it means for us to have sorted. What are you most concerned about? The church's mission in a polarized world covers such a huge number of broad issues. But I want to know, having worked in rural and urban areas in this field, what is it that most concerns you that might not change? Well, my
1: heart, of course, um, is is committed uh, as a priest, um, as somebody who, who believes pretty deeply uh, in Jesus Christ and um, the gift that he is to the world and what he's done for us. Uh, and so that life of faith is kind of a part of who I am in a very profound way. My biggest concern, my biggest worry is that because of the polarized culture of the United States, uh, the church, Will become too intoxicated. That is, Christians will become intoxicated by polarized culture. Will mm. contribute to it, and and the church won't share the good news uh, with the world as much as she is called to do. And I know there are good people uh, trying to do that, um, but I, I I fear that 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 worries me because I just think there's so much hope uh, to be to be given to folks within the church. I I think that you know Jesus has the ability to change people's lives. I know faith is tricky for a lot of people. I I understand the struggle of faith that that folks have. I'm very much empathetic with that. But I want people at least to have the chance um, to know the church's gifts, to know about Jesus. And we can't do that uh, if we are infused by an us versus them mentality. We can't do that if we see somebody who's different than us uh, through the image or metaphor of war, and we see them as our enemy we we can't share the gospel or it's difficult to share the gospel if I want to keep distance between me and somebody who's different, or worse, I want to drop bombs on them metaphorically speaking, right and that that to me is kind of just goes back to the very heart of of christianity it's you know i've I'm like a person wandering in a desert, I've found water, and I want to share the source of that water with others, uh, if I can. And I think polarization can impede us from doing that as much as we should.
0: Well, using Jesus as an example, he spent his 33 years, 2,000 years ago, spreading some pretty basic but moving messages, all based on peace and love and respect. But Father Westman, look what happened to Jesus. I know it. I know. I know. And I try
1: to address very um, lucidly, I think, the idea that if we take up the call to cross over to the other, particularly if it's somebody who sees the world differently than us, there will be ways in which we might be misunderstood. Uh, There might be ways in which we are negatively judged that can happen from the one we encounter. It can also happen from those within our own tribe who are not happy because we are associating with somebody who's not part of our tribe. And um, I think it's a risk that we have to be willing to take. And I think um, the saints in the church uh, have been the ones willing to do that. I think kind of the great uh, missionaries of the church have been willing to do that. And I think we're called to do that. You know. Um, sometimes people will critique what I have to offer uh, in the book and they'll say, you know, um, you don't take the situation serious enough. It's, it's, it's so bad out there. Um, You know, it's, there's too great of a risk. And I always just invite people back to the image of Jesus that we were worth his taking the risk for us. Um, And I think that should be a kind of motivation for us to be willing to take the risk. To, to cross over to the other and stand in solidarity with them, even though it might be difficult.
0: Okay, listen, now I'm asking you, Father, to move, uh, just for a short period of time, move in your part of the country to a little further north than you are right now. And okay. And you're in Washington, D.C. Okay. And you have an opportunity because... They heard you were on The God Show, so you have an opportunity to talk to a combined gathering of everyone in Congress. Uh, And (laughs) this is before the State of the Union address. Okay, so you're going to have to leave tonight. And you have a message for them. And I don't mean this humorously, for whatever miraculous reason you've been invited to address Congress. And they they are, the Republicans over here and the Democrats over here, and nobody is standing for their messages and nobody's applauding for the other guys' messages. What do you have to say to them, any message at all, to bring them closer together?
1: Well, that's a great challenge. It would be a tremendous honor. Um I don't presume to have the answer, um, but I do think that the majority of Americans desire that our politicians work together. That's been demonstrated in a lot of statistics. Um, people are tired of the divisions. It's it's, it's hurting uh, the country. Um, it's hurting families. Uh, it, it's hurting who we are. Um, and I think there is a, a wellspring of people that desire for for them to work together. and. I would just say that they need to find uh, whatever way they can, find, find a way to work together. Um, don't give in to the, the rhetoric of, of hatred. Uh, don't give in to the negative rhetoric. Uh, but, but rise above it, be, be magnanimous. Uh, rise above the polarization, uh, build relationships, uh, and do what you all can, especially to help the poor uh, in the country, those who are marginalized, uh, those who don't have a voice.
0: But, Father, and think, if, if most of the voters are against polarization and are open to the idea of breaking down those divisions, why do the politicians still do it? That's the million-dollar question. I think it's a difficult
1: question for me to answer. I don't know. I suppose um, that at some level uh, there is... Uh, there is an attraction to negativity. So with people in a sense, we we want our politicians to work together, um, but for whatever reason, they know that we're more likely to get out and vote. uh, Sadly, unfortunately, when they kind of uh, beat the drum of negativity. Um, And uh, so there's maybe just an unhealthy cycle and it's really a matter of think those in leadership having to really make the decision to break that cycle and and show a different way forward.
0: How about if you and I decide to create the team of Westman and McMahon (laughs) and we go out and hug a Lutheran today? Yeah, I think that, you know,
1: things beginning at the grassroots uh, is oftentimes the way important things change uh, in society. And I think within my book, I, I do try to provide that kind of grassroots vision um, so that we don't have to necessarily rely on or wait for somebody who's perhaps in an elite position uh, to undo or to depolarize, undo polarization. But we can do that ourselves. I think it actually makes
0: a difference, one relationship to another. I think that you established that pretty solidly in the book. Uh, and it seems to me that in reading the book, uh, if anyone has doubts about the future and communication and reaching out to one another, you may find it uh, mellowed a bit if you read the church's mission in a polarized world. Because it isn't just about the Roman Catholic Church doing it, it's about you and me and Westman and McMahon and all of those folks getting together and doing it. Thank you very much, Aaron. I really enjoyed the conversation. Pat, it's really, it's really been an honor. Thank you so much. Tell you what, we'll all get together then, uh, maybe any day of the week, once this goes on this coming Sunday, uh, Super Bowl Sunday. We'll all get together, and uh, maybe we can just decide to listen to the God Show. Uh, I don't think you can go wrong, but what do I know? I'm
1: Pat McMahon.